Okay, everybody, Stephen Key here, and today we have something very special for you. A while back, uh, we had an interview with the founder of Mighty Jacks. We talked about licensing. We talked about creating some really great figurines, vinyls. I guess it's vinyls or um, all different types of lifestyle characters that people really love. But we have today, we have someone very special on. We have Brian Tan, and your title is Chief Strategy Officer of Mighty Jacks. Is that correct? That is correct, Stephen. Thanks for the introduction. All right, I'm glad I got that right. Okay, and the reason why we're talking today and what's really important to myself and my audience is learning about licensing. And you have quite a resume. You've been in the, in the, in the industry of licensing a lot of the major brands. Could you talk a little bit about yourself and what you've done in the last couple of years? Sure, Stephen. Um, so um, I guess when I first started off in um, the toy industry, uh, I co-founded this company called XM Studios. And that was about um, seven, eight years ago. And uh, during that time, uh, I, I came across these two brothers who were really good at creating and sculpting uh, superheroes, but they didn't have any license. So they were just helping people repair their, their products or their figurines and statues. So they said, hey, Brian, you seem to know, uh, uh, you know a little bit about business. You've, you've started businesses, you've managed to do um, you know, M&As. Could you help us think of a, of a business plan? And I was, uh, I was a big fan of, of, of their work and, and I've been collecting toys and figurines ever since I could save up my pocket money when I was young. And so I said, yeah, let's, let's do it. And one of the things that uh, we focused on was um, trying to get the most popular, I guess, pop culture licenses so that they can start to create work off those IPs. And I, I remember uh, the very first IP that we wanted to get was from the um, Justice League from the Warner Brothers. And it was difficult. Um, let, let, me, let me be honest about it because when we were just a new company, we knocked on a lot of doors. Uh, we talked to the video game companies, some I can't mention, but you know, we, we, um, when we knocked on doors of Warner Brothers, they was like, oh, you know, um, you guys don't have a track record. Uh, it's going to be difficult to just give you an IP. Maybe once you get um, some products out, we can have a chat again. So that was the initial, the first year of business where we couldn't get any IP owners to give us um, any, any rights. So we decided to change the strategy a bit. At this time, we kind of invested in creating prototypes of the figurines that we, we had dreamed of doing. So we started off with some Marvel superhero characters. That was during the time where the Marvel movies were just becoming popular. So we did a couple of uh, Marvel characters like Iron Man, uh, Spider-Man, and we did it um, as if it was, we poured our heart and soul into making those prototypes. So we did two to three of those prototypes. And we decided to set up a meeting with the Disney team. We brought, uh, we locked the, the, the huge heavy statues over and we set the whole thing up as if we were in Shark Tank. And <clears throat> we, pre we presented the products. And I think that was probably, probably the key because the first thing we built came in the room they saw something on the table and they were like, wow, what is this? And they were instantly sort of, I guess, um, interested in, in what we had to offer. And then from there, we actually progressed in talking about having the licenses for the territories to do the products. And, and that started off, once we got our hands on the Marvel license for Southeast Asia, and the rest was history. We started just churning out all the products and all the, all the superheroes. And that's yeah. how I got started. Yeah, I want everybody to understand this a little bit because... I got involved in license. I've been licensing my own ideas for, for a long, long time. And I became a Disney licensee. 
and I'm used to licensing my stuff out, but I became a manufacturer and I wanted to license these brands IP in these rights in like you just talked about. And I remember they have some um, qualifications. You have to be in business and you have to show a track record. I mean, they're not going to license their brand to someone they don't even know or has no track record. So it's kind of difficult to do unless you're showing them something pretty unusual. So you must have shown them something they really liked. Yeah, I think that was the angle. We, we, we showed them something that we thought was going to be a, a, a game changer in the industry. We've never seen... Um, you know, high premium, high quality statues of that um, of those formats where people could switch out different parts and it will create a different story uh, based on what parts do you interchange on the figurine itself. So then that, that caught the attention. And I think it helps, like you said, that we also started to show a little bit of the background that we've been doing a bit of work on a commercial site for Universal Studios and all that. So they, they say, okay, uh, we'll give you guys a chance to try. Okay. Now let's talk about Mighty Jacks for just a minute because uh, we had Jackson on. He talked about his first licensing deal, how he drove out to, to and drove out to California, and, and was like he told me the story. He couldn't really believe how he got the first deal. So your job, and maybe correct me if I'm wrong, you're looking at those type of partnerships going forward. You're looking at what is the next thing to license. Is that correct? Is that what you're doing at Mighty Jacks today? That's right. Uh, so one of my key roles here is to sort of look at the trends um, right. and predict what, what we feel will be where the consumer trends will be interested in. Um, it's almost as if we are spotting new uh, IPs that uh, we feel that's got potential. Okay. And then we sort of invest in them early on so that we get the products out before the shows even hit the ground. Now, how do you do that? Now, let's talk about that for just a minute. You're trying to look at look ahead, look at the future find those those properties that that people are going to want to purchase how do you do that how do you look for trends do you look do you do you travel do you go to trade shows do you watch do they send you i'm sure they send you early uh releases of what movies are going to be but how do you how do you do that explain to everybody sure sure uh, there's a couple of um I guess a lot of angles we look at, right? And like you said, one of them will be a lot of traveling, going to licensing shows, going to attend uh, uh, comic cons. And I guess when you're on the ground and you talk to people and you have um, coffee with various, uh, whether it's collectors or fans or just industry peers, you, you start, start to get to form this pattern of what everybody's talking about, what they think would be the trend moving forward. So that's one side of it. And then in, within, within Money Checks itself, uh, we have a, a process where we have this uh, sort of a step-by-step um, -step process where we, we route through all IPs and ideas and we do uh, two types of uh, the qualification uh, process where first of all, we look at things like the subscribe base, uh, the views on the YouTube. And this gives us a hint of how popular they are. We rank them sort of by order of popularity. And then it goes to a, a soft internal kind of a, a voting system where the sales guys, the commercial guys, the, uh, the product guys, they were all chipping with the ideas on like, okay, on the market, there's a lot of products like this already for this IP. This is going to be tough for us to make. So we have all these in, um, different views from different disciplines of the industry chipping together. And then from there, we have the overall score. We say, okay, these are the shortlisted ones that we think works great. We send them and present them to Jackson and Jackson says, all right, let's go. That's kind of like the whole process. <laughs> okay. So you're getting input. You're on the ground. 
you're talking to people going to things like comic-con so you really see what's happening and you know your audience but still there's a risk here isn't there and you're minimizing the risk a little bit with probably doing limited runs um and I want to talk about how do you determine that but at the end of the day you have minimum guarantees that you probably have to agree to and pay those those companies because that's how the game is played so there's risk here isn't there yeah there's uh well I guess in a way uh, all businesses have risk and uh like what they say no pain no gain so um the risk like you said uh is common uh, what we try to do is to mitigate the risk by first of all when there's an mg given to us um for example let's just say if it's 100 grand and what we do is that we take that mg we do a reverse calculation of what does that translate to how many products how many SKUs we need to produce within the contractual period so we kind of reverse book backwards and say okay this is the minimum number of designs and okay. products we need to sell and then we try to buffer and plan a little bit more so that we we safeguard ourselves okay so that probably determines a little bit about your limited edition type of thing right that's right okay. because you do something really special is that and a lot of people don't understand let me explain this if if you hold back the number you know it, it becomes real special if you're only going to produce so many um it becomes even has more value so is that part of the equation when you're doing the math determine how to pay back those minimum guarantees saying look we're going to limit it to this much put the value on it this much and um hopefully we sell is that how that works into that calculation as well yeah it's uh -huh. kind of like that right um just to go a little bit deeper into that is that um, one very important, I guess, distinction between toys and collectibles for us is that collectibles needs to be, um, I guess, the scarcity model works. It's got to be limited edition. You got to feel like uh, not everyone can get their hands on it. I think that's the the attraction of of you know the hunt to search for for treasure, and and to do that, uh, it's there's a, there's various ways to do it. It could be, for example, we could limit the number of the production produced. So that's example, uh, five hundred pieces worldwide. Another way uh, we could do it is that we could collaborate with the artists involved to create limited edition, say, uh, signed postcards or signed artwork that is given out with maybe the first 200 purchases. So there are various ways we could kind of create that, that uh, I guess, that limited feel. Um, but it's very important, like you said, and um, uh, what we want to really focus on is not how many limited edition stuff we sell, but we also focus on what is the secondary market value. Because... Um, yeah, because it's, it's, it's almost as if that you could sell uh, 200 or 300 only and you could, you know, make less profit, but that's fine. If those two, 300 on the secondary market, everyone's kind of flipping them. Everybody's want, wanting to pay premium above retail price. Now that elevates your brand and then it oh. makes your second piece easier to sell out. So that's one of the, uh, okay. I guess, uh, 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 a deeper thought into how we, we price and, and you know, uh, decide on quantity. So you have special artists that take these these well-known brands and you change them a little bit too all right yes sometimes a lot <laughs> sometimes a lot and I really like the way you do that so you have to pay the artist and you have to pay the you know the the licensor too so you're paying two people out of this that's right that's right all right so that gets a little trickier too doesn't it? It does. Uh, it does. It does. Uh, I think we we worked out a, a pretty reasonable or fair system where um, there's uh, there's actually three scenarios with us right now. The first is that we just um, work with the licensor, 
So that's very simple. We just pay one royalty fee percentage to the licensor and that's it. Now, once we look in an artist, um, now artists also have their original works. Sometimes we don't collaborate with the licensors and they just do their original work. But in, a, in, the, in the situations where we have a licensor and artists come together, uh, we've already have pre, a, a table of royalty structure that says, okay, if it's an original and a one party IP, the percentage royalty is this much. For example, this is 10%. But if it's a core IP, because we have to keep our retail price you know, uh, accessible to consumers, uh, we get the licensor and the artist to agree to taking half of each. So we, we pay, example, 5% to the licensor and 5% to the artist. So they, they both get equal cuts. So this is usually how we do. So there's a structure of um, either a single IP or okay. a double IP. Yeah. And in rare cases, we even have three collaborators and then you have uh, like two brands, one artist. So that gets a bit more uh, difficult to, to plan out, but uh, we usually tie this all down in a contractual uh, okay. stage before we even create products. Okay. Uh, this double royalty, it's split royalty. You see the Michael Jordan on the back. That's the way that was done. I got yeah. a piece of it. Michael got a I think you get the bigger piece, Michael. And But we split the royalty. <laughs> okay. So, all right. Thank you for explaining that. I, sometimes people are a little confused. Okay. Let's talk about the royalty rate that you're paying the licensor. It varies. I mean, sometimes these brands that you want to license are really, really popular. So they demand a higher royalty, just like if I was an inventor, if I have something really hot, I may be able to leverage a higher royalty. How does that all work? And are you the negotiator with this? Are you the one that's kind of trying to, you know, trying to get a better royalty, a lower royalty rate? Is it you? I mean, how does that all work too? Yeah, uh, uh, I think... You're right. There's there's uh, there's so many different IP and licenses out there, and they they usually have a uh, different degrees of of the royalty rates, and and some of the more established ones will be uh, definitely more expensive, uh, and they demand also a high MG upfront, and some some licenses maybe they're they're trying to get their brand out, so they'll be they'll be more willing to say, okay, we don't charge you an MG. Okay. Just pay us when you sell products. So that's that's a usually me and the licensing team. Um, uh, we we get involved. We talk about the the structure and the deals. Um, but it's pretty standard though. It's it's usually uh it's usually an MG with a percentage of a royalty. Uh, but it gets more convoluted when we start talking about digital collectibles. That's like a whole different ball game. Yeah. Yeah, we'll get to that in just a minute. That whole world. Um, <laughs> okay, so. Let's talk a little bit about finding the artist for a minute, because you're right, you change it. And sometimes you have to work with that licensor to say, look, we're going to change your brand a little bit. That's not easy. The first time I saw that was, with, I think it was called Studio 54 with Disney, really changing Mickey Mouse to some of this really interesting artwork. And they agreed to it because those are those brands are pretty, you know, those are, those are brands you, they don't really want to touch, but they let the artists do some really creative stuff with it. How do you find those artists? Do you find them at trade shows online? How do you find those good artists to, to really help you? Uh, I think uh, during the pandemic years where there was a lot less conventions and traveling, uh, we, we find and source a lot of uh, artists through 
um, online where we go through different art uh, you know we go through the popular forums and we look at the instagram look at what they post their works and you you, you know everybody was stuck at home so they were just doing more artwork so there was a lot of artwork to sift through so we have a, like an in-house team of, of uh, uh, the entire creative team i think was uh, 50 yeah. to 60 people uh, every week they will they'll just uh, shortlist a couple of, of artists and then we pick the ones that we feel works best got it interesting it, the world has gotten it, it's gotten easier in some ways right because of zoom and everything else um all right let's talk about the digital world right at the moment Okay, because you're doing something pretty unusual. You're you're bringing together the digital world and the physical world, right? And you're you're kind of bringing those together. How do you do that? So one of the things that we we strongly believe in is that the future is definitely digital, right? I mean, uh, it's like it's hard to imagine life without internet these days. So um, and and I have four four, four kids, right? And and my kids spend way more time in the digital world than they do socializing out there. Like, it, like my, my like my experience is I want to go out, have a drink, have a cup of wine, uh, a glass of wine with my friends, and you know we we want to like socialize in physical kind of uh, get to know people, hug people, and all that. But my kids they are like, uh, oh, just leave us alone. We just want to be in our Fortnite and our you know our Minecraft worlds, uh, and they're just there. Like they, I think they spend way more time in in, in the virtual world than the real world. So we we knew that the future generation they they definitely gonna spend more time in the digital world. And, and and even then we, we start to predict that the trends definitely will be that they will spend most of their I guess time and also their resources on acquiring digital collectibles versus physical ones. So um so that that's why when we we were thinking about okay, how do we bridge this? Because we're still toys is still a very traditional physical uh item that you, you you know, once you buy them, you unbox them, you put it on the shelf and you kind of forget about it. So how do we extend the shelf life of that? So we decided that all our um, toys are embedded with the nfc chip it's a way that uh, once you get it you you put your mobile phone device near it like five centimeters it detects the chip and it authenticates and registers the products that's the, the first key step it makes people okay i want to know that i've paid money for a real original stuff okay. and after that once they authenticate themselves they go into this what we call extended experience so to give you an example right um when we work with sesame street if you bought a uh, an elmo and you scan Elmo to register Elmo, it opens up a little Tamaguchi Elmo game where you got to feed Elmo snacks to keep him happy. The whole purpose is to, to make everybody happy and you, you got to sustain the happiness by feeding Elmo good snacks. So you could feed him uh, like uh, apples or bananas and all. But if you want him to be super happy, you need to unlock special snacks like cookies. But to get cookies, you've got to purchase Cookie Monster. And scan Cookie Monster, it unlocks the cookies, and then you can fit Elmo the cookies. And as you start to collect more and more of the Sesame Street characters, you, oh. you form a family a family portrait. And this family portrait you can then share with your friends. You say, "Hey, look, this is my collection journey. I've got all my happy family of characters, and they're all happy. And the happiness index is so high." So then, then there's a little contest where these these collectors start to compete and say who has the happiest uh, collection. So this is where we try to bridge the gap between you collect something physical, but beyond that, we want to extend that that enjoyment of the fandom of the IP so they can interact with it through this digital mini game. That's, That's what amazing. we did with Well, congratulations on, on everything and picking the winners and doing some amazing things. And I just want to thank you for sharing part of what how that really works. And um, you know, my audience loves licensing. 
they they realize they're trying to come up with ideas to license out but a large part of my audience is thinking about if i'm a manufacturer how do i license in and you're doing a great job with that so thank you so much for this interview uh, if there's anything you could say uh, or suggest at the end or, or maybe paint the future is can you what are you looking at next i mean you're you're bridging the gap between the physical and the digital is there anything you're going beyond that that you're thinking about that you could share anything new really cutting yeah. this sure sure so so as i was talking about uh from a physical to to, to cross over to the digital world and we realized that a lot of the the old traditional licensing models may not work the same way because with digital collectibles um it's it's not the same in the sense that um let's say for traditional toys there's there's the usual um, manufacturing stage you could produce the the physical stuff and there's cost to it and then there's a lot of logistics uh you got to ship it to different countries and there's fob there's all these uh, terms you know but when it's digital none of that exists because you just it's digital you just put it on a platform and people buy it there's no manufacturing of sorts there's no uh, factories that's got to be pharma certified um so it's it, it creates a different contract experience and then they have smart contracts for for nfts which is a different kind of contracts uh, because uh, you know the the, the web to the web tree means that simply put the web tree um folks now have uh ownership of the assets they could own the product yes. and they, they could own the digital collectible and then they could also i guess uh do stuff with it right and that means that they have to have a sort of a personal contract with the item they've just acquired so that kind of changes the whole structure of the the, the, the contractual work for the traditional uh stuff and and everyone's still trying to figure that out there's no template uh every license we spoke to they have a different terms they, they, they have different royalty rates and they have different expectations so it's been uh exciting but also uh a little frustrating to work that through right now so will there be a time where you you won't do physical but you'll do digital just by itself that's happening too isn't it oh um i i think we had this debate internally but uh what we've come to believe as as a group is that um it's it's impossible for us to just I guess migrate 100% to just digital because okay. we feel that the whole purpose of it is that uh, we believe in the word digital. It's got to be a bit of physical, it's a bit of digital. And the reason is because that um, even to get to the digital world, you still need physical um, okay. connections, right? You, you need yep. a, a physical handphone, you need okay. a modem, you still need to eat, you know, even though you could spend a whole day in a virtual world, you still need to drink. So, so we believe that uh, it, it won't just be hundred percent, you know, and 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 it has to be a, a good mixture of both. Got it, Brian. Thank you so much for this interview. This is fantastic. It's very exciting, and um, I look forward to maybe having you back next year to see what's going on. But thank you so much for this interview. Thank you, Stephen. It's been a pleasure. Mm -hmm.